Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. Not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. A few weeks ago, I shared audio from the Recovery Today series that last September I was featured on, and I was interviewed by Sherry Gaba, Gaba, the creator and editor of Recovery Today magazine, who is a psychotherapist and a coach with so much on the go, it is hard to even know where to start. Now, you may know Sherry from her work on celebrity rehab, or perhaps you've read one of her several books or e-books on recovery and relationships. Maybe you subscribed to Recovery Today magazine, or perhaps you took part in her annual online series, which just marked its fifth year. In any event, after hearing Sherry interview me on that recent episode, many of you let me know you wanted to hear more from her. So here she is. Her latest book, The Marriage and Relationship Junkie, was released on Valentine's Day and became an overnight bestseller. Sherry, congratulations, and welcome to the Bubble Hour. Oh, Jen, thank you. Thank you for having I meant Jean. It's Jean. For, <laughs> oh, my God, I can't believe I said Jen. So sorry. I know we're both stumbling over each other's names today. Oh, wow. Oh, what can gosh. we do? Oh, um, Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I God, was that really me? All those things you just mentioned, I'm like, oh, no wonder I'm spinning around and around and around. I do a lot, <laughs> don't I? <laughs> you do, and I'm sure that doesn't even cover it all. I know that you're just a busy lady and you've got a big heart, and um, you love Aww. to help people, don't you? Well, you know, I became a social worker to do just that. And, um, you know, just by a whole bunch of series of things that occurred, I started in hospice, you know, working with, patients that were dying and dealing with that sort of loss and then eventually just kind of morphed into the field of addiction and dealing with those losses only to marry someone that was in recovery only to divorce the person that was in recovery or relapsed um and just did i just all this stuff fell together i ended up getting a job at a, a malibu rehab known as promises where all the celebrities um go and then i um, got invited to do celebrity rehab and then suddenly i was asked by a big publisher you know to to write a book and so everything just kind of fell into place pretty organically but i i, I do work hard but i love what i do and i'm passionate about it and um even more so than ever really to to change the stigma around addiction and to support the families of, of those that, that love addicts and alcoholics do you feel like it's changing I mean, you're doing a lot, and um, I love the work that you're doing. I just, 
I wonder what it feels like from you having sort of seen the arc of this. Do you feel like we're kind of at a watershed moment, or is there a lot more to be done? You know, I think what I'm seeing, um, even since I started in this field, is that there's a lot more opportunities and choices out there. Um, mm-hmm. I think a lot of the young people today, maybe even some of the people that are middle-aged and older, are wanting some new modalities, some new ways of looking at recovery. Um, I had the opportunity to interview um, the Refuge Recovery's own, uh, founder, uh, oh. Noah Levine, last week, and so he's kind of mm-hmm. taking Buddhism and Zen and bringing it to recovery, and you and I know a lot of really amazing uh, women that are doing different things. She recovers and so forth. So I'm excited that there's this freshness and there's a place for everyone because for me, when I, the reason I wrote my book, The Law of Sobriety, um, was because people really uh, love this idea of law of attraction meets recovery. Like they love this idea of infinite intelligence. They love this idea of um, what, you cre- what you attract or what you put in the universe or what you create is what you get back. And it really spoke to a lot of people, and that was like, you know, that was back in 2010. And now I'm just seeing more and more of these things morphing, and I think it's, again, allowing people to not just have to go to a 12-step meeting. Again, I love, you know, I am a big proponent of the 12 steps. I belong to a program myself, but it isn't always for everyone. So that's what I love. I think there's just more opportunity to pick and choose what it is that works for you um, in, in your recovery. I love that. We often hear people on this show use the term patchwork recovery. Actually, you often hear me use it <laughs> talking to oh, other people. Oh, okay. Um, uh-huh. uh, William White kind of coined that term for the sort of smorgasbord approach because, there, as you say, there's so many excellent modalities. And, you know, we, the, the, it's important to stick to recovery and to, and to stick to our um, uh, abstinence-based recovery especially um, oh, your dog's barking. My dog barks. My dog's barking, so show. I just picked her up so that we can <laughs> not have that. <laughs> What's your dog's name? My dog is Mocha. Mocha is my, Mocha. my buddy, and um, oh. she's just the best watchdog. Even though she's very little, she has a very ferocious bark. But, yeah. but you know, even the dog barking is sort of a patchwork of the messiness of life. Like, things are just <laughs> not always the way we, we see them <laughs> no, or that's the way we right. want them to be. It gives us all that me too moment, right? Um I've okay. had I've had a lots of things happen on this show. Usually my mom calls at some point and you can hear the answering <laughs> machine going off in the background cuz I still have an old school answering machine. I mean, that is life. And uh and yeah, it is life. And, life. and I think if we're in recovery of whatever we're in recovery from, we have we have to be okay with that things just aren't. I think a lot of us are even recovering from being perfect. So I think when things yeah. do happen like a dog barks or your machine goes off, I think it's just a great example of, you know, it doesn't have to be perfect. Right? That is a very good point. And um just before we went to air, Sherry and I were both checking our lines and trying to make sure we had a good connection. And at the last moment, I went racing through my house to grab a different phone because my speakers weren't quite connecting right. And and mm. uh, about 30 seconds before this recording started, our listeners will appreciate that Sherry, the consummate professional, was telling me to stay calm, just relax. Oh, oh. yeah. So well, you know, what I find really fascinating is that we both put out into the universe the intention to have a really special interview, and lo and behold, the universe answered our call, and now we have a great line and great connection. Yes. That's right. 
dogs and all. Well, let's yeah. let's um just go back to what we were talking about. Um which was um we were talking about the patchwork, the idea of a patchwork recovery and and making use of all different kinds of um things that are now available. And do you feel like that the fact that people are just talking more openly about things is helpful um not only for people who are considering, you know, the sober curious types, but also maybe family members or those around them that are affected by shame or stigma or just misinformation. How do you see that changing? Um, I think there's less judgment. You know, when I was on Celebrity Rehab back in 2008, 2009, there were a lot of naysayers. Um, A lot Mm -hmm. of people, you know, wrote me and said, oh, my God, how can you take recovery and put it on TV? It's an anonymous program. And and then a, uh, maybe a handful of people even died that were had been on the different seasons. There, I think there were five seasons. And then I got you know emails like, oh, you know, your program wasn't really a program. Look what happened to this person and that one. And there was so much judgment. I mean, the bottom line is it was a program, and they were getting support. And it was really the first time that rehab like that, except maybe for the show Intervention, actually introduced, like, this is what happens when you go into a treatment center. And Mm -hmm. it took the fear out for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And... And and more importantly than that, the, the the celebrities that were on the show, they needed recovery. They didn't have the ability to go to treatment. If they didn't have the show to go on, they might not have gotten sober, and many of them are still sober. So I think to answer your question, because that, that, that just kind of spoke to me, was the idea that there's less shame and there's less judgment. And um, I have a really hard time with black or white thinking. I think that life is about an and like there's this and there's that. It doesn't right. have to be one way or the other because, you know, as addicts, alcoholics, or codependents, love addicts, which I am, um, we tend to be very black or white. We tend to be all or nothing. So if we're in a program that's very all or nothing, um, I think it creates, um, it, it creates, it just creates less openness. However, with that said, I don't want to judge the people that, that, strictness, that one way of looking at things works for someone, great. Like if that's Mm -hmm. working, that one direction of looking at things, that's awesome. What I love is that whole old concept that I heard, you know, a a long time ago, and I've heard it in Al-Anon, is take what you can and leave the rest. So I just want, you know, everyone to have the ability to, to sort of pick and choose what works for them so that they can have a really great, joyous, peaceful, serene life. You know, mentioning Celebrity Rehab, um, I have to say that that show, I'm sure others had the same experience with it. I was I was drinking. Um, I was deep into my pattern when, when I discovered that show. And uh-huh. I think that it planted seeds for me. Um, mm. I would listen. I would listen to the therapy sessions or to, you know, just questions that um, that would be asked of the people that were in care. And I would think, oh, why is that important? Oh, well, what's that about? Oh, you know, and I would have a few little, like, pings of, oh, okay. I mean, I wasn't ready maybe to to make a change, but I was gearing up. And so I'm really grateful to every participant in that show because they gave service to me, and I'm sure millions of others feel the same way. Maybe even people that were a little bit 
scared by it or, or put off by it might understand, too, that it, it might have shone a light on something for them. So I think it did I, a lot I of good. I think so. I, I'm so, you know, I love hearing that. Uh, thank you for sharing that because that's what the intention was. The intention was really pure. And, sure, it was, you know, a show and they had producers, but, you know, nothing was ever staged. You know, I mean, the things that I would hear, you know, that people thought was going on was just not the case. I mean, what people don't realize is that I, I was the therapist behind the scenes, so even though you would maybe see the counseling or the group counseling or you'd see Drew doing a session, there was always therapy for these people out after you know, everything was filmed, not everything got on air, but they always mm-hmm. had therapy and therapists there mm-hmm. available to them. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was it was a great program for so many. Let's talk about your book a little bit. Um, the new one is sure. Marriage and Relationship Junkie. And you had mentioned, um, you know, your experience um, personally with feeling codependent and and under and just seeing a correlation between mm, how people act out in different ways, different symptoms. I believe you used was the word that you used for it um, in an earlier discussion we had. So tell me about this book, and and then let's talk about any commonalities between um, addicts of alcohol or drugs and addicts of relationships. That's that's a great question. Well, I'm really proud of the book. It came out like you said, February seventh. Uh, and it did become a bestseller uh, in substance abuse and codependency, and it was endorsed by Melody Beatty, who uh, wrote the book Codependent No More, and she's a dear friend and colleague of mine, and just so grateful for her. Um, The book really um, sort of takes... um, A lot of people know about love addiction, relationship addiction. This kind of goes a step further and talks about marriage addiction, which is not something people talk about. But there is a lot of shame. And so that would be one comparison, is that there's shame in addiction and there's shame in marriage addiction or substance abuse addiction and marriage addiction. I have been married multiple times. I am a total love relationship marriage addict in recovery. I spent a great deal of my life in relationships so that I could avoid the emptiness, the core abandonment, you know, feelings that were just so deep inside of me. I was so wounded inside that the only thing I thought could fix it was the love of of someone else versus the love of loving myself and being enough within myself. And the whole point of this book is that if one person is thinking about, you know, because we still live in a society where, you know, the, the, the white picket fence, although a lot of millennials are not getting married, they're actually living together, but if one person out there can say, you know, am I making this decision from the right place or am I doing this out of emptiness or loneliness or, you know, desperation or craving or, or wanting to fit in or thinking no one will ever want me or blah, 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 I have done my job. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'd been an, a very young single mother and, um, I wanted that, quote, family. And so I kept trying to create this illusion, this family, this illusion that was never, never going to happen. And it was, it, it, it was because my intentions were not from the right place. And so that is really what the book is about, is about learning how to step into your, um, yourself, step into your self-love, um, not settling, knowing that you're worthy and deserving of everything you could possibly want. And, again, it's taking a step further from love addiction to the to the idea that you don't have to be married to be happy. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, yeah. And is it the romance of the ceremony 
or the th- losing yourself in another person or just the excitement, you know, that like dopamine high or whatever. What is love? Is it dopamine? What is the high that we get from it, it, you know, it is it is sort of a dopamine high. It's actually the same fix that someone would get if they wanted a heroin fix. It's actually the same mm. sort of feeling. And when the relationship would end, for me, I would go into withdrawal. I really would. And I'd be like, oh, my God. And I would get into panic and I would get into terror. And, you know, it's embarrassing to talk about, but it's, it, it, you know, I sometimes share, and I've shared this many times, and it sometimes will help people if they hear the story, but I had been premature. Uh, back I, I, the time I was born, if you had a premature baby, moms were not allowed to bond with the babies. They actually, I did not meet my mother for three months. I was three pounds. Mm-hmm. I was in an incubator. Nowadays we know that, um, you know, social workers go to mothers' homes and they teach them how to, like, give extra love and extra nurturing and extra care and extra touch. They didn't do any of that when I was born. And so I literally was in, I was born like in terror. Like I, I really did not have the bonding or the attachment that is so important in, you know, when you're, when you're a newborn. So that really set me up um, for a, just a lifetime of looking for the love I didn't get at that early time. And I, I like to share the story because I think there are people out there that will be able to relate. And, you know, they may be able to relate in a different way, like they may be somebody that might have had alcoholic or addict parents that weren't available. They might have been uh, people that had parents that were neglecting them. They might have had a single parent that was so busy and occupied that they didn't get the attention they needed. And so they might have felt invisible. They might have felt like, you know, their feelings didn't count. They weren't, um, you know, they just weren't available. They were maybe neglected. Um, and so, you know, when you are when you grow up like that, you know, it kind of leaves a hole inside of you. And, you know, I think that, too, again, it can be very similar to addiction, that feeling, you know, substance abuse, where you just feel so empty, and the only way you know how to fill it up is with a substance. So whether it's love, food, sex, you know, gambling, I mean, uh, Gabar Mate, he's a, a pretty renowned speaker in this field. I mean, his addiction was going and buying CDs. You know, mm-hmm. and that was his, you know, he had been a child of a Holocaust survivor, and so he too didn't get his needs met. And, and then we're just getting back into the idea of trauma. I think that the things that addicts, all addicts, whatever the addiction is, a lot of them have trauma or they have a mental health, you know, issue like depression or anxiety. Um, I think they have underneath codependency. Um, I think when I think about my ex-husband's story, I think it's the codependency that has taken him down uh, more than anything else, even though he is an active alcoholic. Um, I think that a lot of fear runs the gamut with most addicts. So I think there's so many similarities between all of these addictions. And it's just the, it's what's missing inside. It's feeling not enough. It's feeling less than. It's not, it's, it's not feeling connected to yourself is really what it comes mm-hmm. down to. And, and um, I'm a big believer in trauma therapy, which is something I did that really just was a life changer for me once I did that work. Um, it just made such a difference in, in me being able to be with me. What is trauma therapy? Um, I did something called somatic experiencing. Um, it's Peter Levine's book. There's a great book out there called Waking the Tiger that talks about the fight-flight response. Other trauma therapy is EMDR. Um, there's tapping, and okay, all of EMDR these things, is 
eye movement, right? Where you yes. revisit yeah. old memories and your exactly. lesbian eye movement. And what and tapping. Exactly. Tell me about tapping. So tapping is where we have different energy centers in our body, what we call chi. And when we get stuck in a thought or an addiction or or a feeling of um like we're not in touch with our body, we have to sort of move the energy. And so what tapping does is actually moves it moves energy. It moves energy so you kind of get unstuck. Um, let's say you're obsessing over someone you love or let's say you're obsessing over wanting to drink or maybe you have really bad depression or maybe you're in crippling fear. You do this series of tapping at different uh, center points in your body, different chi centers. Um, I can't think of the word. Um, you know, like it's the center, it's what acupuncture is. It's basically acupuncture, acupressure you're doing to yourself. Um, mm-hmm. so maybe maybe I'm looking for the word acupun- ac- acupuncture points. I don't know mm-hmm. if you do you know what I'm talking about, Jean? Like there's sort certain, of pressure points. Yeah, I do, but I don't know the pressure right point. Pressure points. Yes. <clears throat> yes. I, I feel point. like um, I I would have at one point listened to this and thought this sounded all way too woo woo for me, but there's uh-huh. that, there is good science behind it. This really is about sensory and brain activation, and there there is. Um, there's something scientific going on. It isn't just sort of um, an idea, right? I mean, it really oh, you can measure sure. the body's uh, response to this. Well, what we know is that talk therapy doesn't work alone. I, I'm also a licensed clinician, like a licensed psychotherapist, and you know, I do some of the talk therapy, of course. But we know that when you have these early trauma experiences, like I had, um, it isn't enough to just talk. You actually have to release that energy that's been blocked. And once you release that energy, then you get back in your body and you can be with yourself. Because really mm-hmm. what addiction is, it's wanting to run away from yourself. Right. You're, so aff- you're, so, you're like in terror. And so I spent my whole life, you know, looking for other people to fill me up because I was so afraid of just me being in my own skin. Mm-hmm. I never learned how to be in my own skin. It, you know, there I was crying in that incubator. And, and again, you know, some people may be on the call going, oh, come on, get over it. That was, you were just a baby. You don't remember. Well, we know for sure that there is cell memory, cell memory, that the things that you may not remember in your brain, your body absolutely remembers. We've talked on this show a number of times as well that people uh, that have been adopted have a higher incidence of addiction and alcoholism. Um, And the assumption there is that that comes from attachment disruption as babies, too. So uh, I could completely believe that these experiences would have, um, you know, just deeply buried traumatic effect. For sure. I mean, here you are, you're in your little mommy's womb, and you're hearing her voice every day, and then all of a sudden you're coming out into the world, you you don't she's gone like it's it completely has more or less abandoned you in a way not necessarily meaningful you know not meaning to but that's kind of what it is and you're suddenly relying on strangers you're rely you know you might not be picked up like you would have been picked up by your mother there there may not be that attunement you know i think of i think you're a mom right jean i am and a grandma you, you are yeah <laughs> So think about when you were mirroring your babies and you were looking into their eyes. You know, I'm a new grandma. I have a two-year-old granddaughter, and I just get to be so present with her, and I just I mm-hmm. look at her eyes, and I connect, and there's this attunement, and that's, you know, that's how security is developed, and that's how, um, again, you know, good attachment is developed. And 
gives you the ability to kind of explore the world but know that you're safe and, and all of that. Well, if you don't get that, can, you know, you can imagine the kind of havoc that would play on your 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 body, your wiring system, you know, your energy. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, I, I'm glad that you do see that um, there is scientific evidence with all of this stuff. I mean, waking the tiger is, abs- you know, not waking the tiger, somatic experience, which is based on the Peter Living's work, which is the book Waking the Tiger is absolutely scientifically based that we know we have a fight flight response and you can either flee or fight and for many of us we freeze and the freezing is what we're going to what you you know that's what the work is is to unfreeze you to 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 get rid of all of that energy that's been blocked and frozen mm. that's a good way to describe it and I, you know i've had these moments over the past many years of sobriety and recovery where I sort of think of them as like fireworks moments almost where someone, I'll just hear a word in a conversation or in a sharing circle that that is one of those ah, aha moments where I realize something I always just thought was true or took for granted has a name and is a thing and can be changed. And those have been really explosive moments for me in my recovery. And one of those moments was just a friend in a you know, group of women, a group of sober women, where we were talking about our, our lives and our experiences. And one friend used the, used the term maladaptive coping strategy. And I just had one of those, like, light bulb moments where I could just see all of these things that I hated about myself or that I didn't understand about myself and that I thought were me – were maladaptive coping strategies and Uh could be changed. And I wonder if when you um, were doing your training or earlier perhaps even when you heard about things like attachment theory or about, um, you know, babies' responses to their moms, were you having these aha moments about your own life or did that come later? How, How did that unfold for you? Oh, my God, Jean, you're so intuitive. That is exactly what happened. Um, I did learn about attachment theory in school, but it wasn't until I actually went into this training called somatic experiencing. Um, it was, you know, to get certified in this in this line of work, you know, to add sort of another modality to my therapy practice, and it was life changing, and it was exactly what I needed. When it, I mean, I always knew there was something kind of wrong with me, <laughs> you know, like when I was oh. growing up, and my parents would go out of, you know, town, or they'd go out on a Saturday night. My brother would be like, "Bye, have a good time," and I'd be crying and so sad, and I didn't want mm-hmm. them to leave me, and. I just always knew I was different. And, you know, you hear that from alcoholics, too. They'll say, I just knew I had, there was, I was different. I just didn't feel a part of or whatever. And, yes, when I went to this training, I had the biggest aha moment, and I was able to put a word to it. And I realized, oh, my God, I definitely had early trauma issues mm-hmm. that never got addressed. And um, you have no idea what it's like to suddenly be a present person. I was so in my head and so just this narrow focus and it's kind of like kind of like kind of like being under an umbrella and then you take the umbrella away and all, all of a sudden there's a whole world and that's really what happened for me when I did this work is I suddenly could be in my body I could be I could tolerate the moment I could tolerate being present um you know I still go get out of my body sometimes and I get into things like workaholism or you know codependency sometimes you know rears its ugly head and then I just have to like wake up all over again and go okay what's going on here let's ground our feet you know let's let's 
kind of notice our breath and notice where's the energy in our body that, you know, is sort of not here. Let's kind of bring it back to here. And, um, you know, like in the program they talk about turning it over, turning it over. It's kind of the same thing. It's like continually the waking up, waking up, and waking up. And that's really what I've learned to do, and I kind of learned how to do it pretty, kind of later in life. So I hope some of these young people that are listening to this and, and get the, the um, support out there if they're feeling like, they can't be present or they're disassociated or they know there's something wrong and they or they're you know, they can't be alone, they have to be in relationship or or of course those that are struggling with addiction or substance abuse. Yeah, I, I I'm so excited when I see young people that are working on this stuff in their twenties. Any Can you age, imagine? Though. I mean actually yeah. every time I see someone at any stage of life working on it, I think it's amazing. I mean, there's 80-year-olds getting sober, you know. There's 18-year-olds yeah. getting yeah. sober. And it is amazing at every stage, but it's really beautiful that you're taking what you've learned and, and putting it forward and maybe sparing someone else, you know, a painful lesson. I mean, I always think that we yeah. can learn from each I mean, other. We don't know, have to learn everything ourselves. Right, right. I mean, everything's lessons and everybody's going to make mistakes and all of that, but you know, I I actually got married at 22, and and it was uh, if I would have known then what I know now, I, I probably I mean I'm grateful because I have a beautiful daughter and a beautiful granddaughter, and I you know it was all supposed to be, but but there was a lot of pain, you know, a lot of mis- mm-hmm. you know a lot of relationships that I didn't have to go through um, if I would have known or you know had done this work earlier, I think it would have just completely changed my life and. The good news is now I'm here to help others around it and and help others work through these things. Um, you know, maybe when they're you know before they have to make all these uh, because cause life is a series of choices. You know, and I think that if we can make decisions um, in a place of groundedness and in a place where we're regulated in our systems and our in our bodies, um, if we're connected to ourselves, I mean, all of these decisions will be so much more effective for your life. Mm, yeah. What now we talked a little bit about different aspects or different symptoms of that disconnect from self. Um, your book looks at relation you know, substituting relationship for comfort and security and how that same ism comes out in shopping and eating disorders and there's a lot of I've heard it called fellow travelers, you know, there's a lot of sort of comorbidities or, or dual diagnosis that people have. And as I was reviewing your book and I was thinking, you know, all all apples are fruits, but not all fruits are apples. And I wondered if there's any correlation when it comes to codependence and or codependency and being addicted to relationships and marriage. Is is alcoholism common in that demographic? And is is um codependency common in alcoholism and addiction? You know, that's a great, great question. Jean, you're just an amazing interviewer. I love your um, insight <laughs> and intuition. You really are. I have to, you know, I'm a fellow interviewer, so I, when I meet someone that can do this job really well, I'm like, wow, this is awesome. Because um, oh, believe you. me, there's some people that don't interview quite this well. But anyway, um, what I do know, and I really do know this, is that I do believe most of the addicts and alcoholics that I have met underneath there is codependency. There just is. There's a lot of that because it's an other codependency is an other focused disease. It's all about what's going on outside of me. 
it's looking for something on the outside that really is in the inside. Just like they're looking towards their substances, they're looking, or they're looking towards people, places, or things. They're they're all, or they're looking for attention, or they're looking for validation, or they're looking for acknowledgement. So I see a lot of codependency under addiction and alcoholism. You can be a codependent without being a love addict. Like you can be a codependent. In other words, maybe you're a people pleaser at work. Or maybe you don't know how to say no to people or you don't have good boundaries, but that doesn't mean that you're a love addict. But certainly if you're a love addict, there are definitely codependent characteristics. You know, there uh-huh. there absolutely is because you're depending on something outside of yourself to make you feel good on the inside, which is part of what codependency is. Um, does that make sense? It does, yeah. And it's interesting from that perspective too, so it leads me to the question that, Does everything heal in a similar way? Um, Do the same principles that help us quit drinking help us heal codependency and relationship addiction? What's the recovery process that you take people through, and how does it vary from different symptoms? Well, I think recovery is pretty much the same throughout, um, no matter what the addiction is. So the kind of process that I like to, to look at is, First, there's that first step of awareness, you know, that waking up to the issue, which maybe people would say is the first step, realizing that your life has become unmanageable. But the first step would be awareness. And then the next is making a decision to change and then learning to stop looking for external solutions for your problems, exploring your personal fears, moving out of denial, Hmm. examining those early suppressed trauma issues that you might have, in, you know, that you had in childhood, um, really doing a lot of self-parenting work, I mean, really loving that, you know, that little Jean or that little Sherry, mm-hmm. becoming a really loving and forgiving and compassionate person to yourself, that's a big one. Like, so often codependents are so, they care so much about everybody else, they forget to care about themselves or have compassion for themselves. Right. Um and then using the pain to grow and prepare for a healthy relationship or a healthy life and trusting in yourself and letting go. And then, does you know, finding come, things. Does oh, it have ahead. to come in that order, Sherry? Is there, it's like, what has to be the first thing? You know, do I don't think start? it has to, to be in that order, but I do think the first one is pretty important, awareness. I think awareness and denial I mean, getting Mm -hmm. out of denial. I think that's huge, you know, because it's the denial that keeps you from, you know, making the choice to change. Um, You know, when you know something, you need to get out of a certain, let's say, relationship or you need to stop drinking, it's so easy to go into denial because if you go into denial, you don't have to to get rid of your goodies, right? So it's that Mm -hmm. fear of the truth is sort of, your desire to use or have a relationship or not be alone is greater than the truth of knowing that this is not good for you. Like, is this a real epiphany for a lot of people that, you know, someone that's had numerous marriages or serial relationships that, oh, this isn't just my life unfolding, this is a pattern that I'm contributing to. Is that is that a hard thing to accept or is that a welcome idea? I think it's, very hard to accept if you don't want to go through the pain 
because that's what people are, are are running from. You know, like, and now we're living in a time with all of these dating apps and uh, Internet dating, and it's so disposable to, uh, well, we're dis- we can be disposable, but there's so much, av- I didn't mean to say disposable, there's so much available to to just keep, you know, this cycle going of next, next, next. You know, this one doesn't want me, so let's go to the next one. And I don't have to be alone. I can just get on this, this you know, Internet site or I can get on this dating app. Or I, I think it's um, a huge issue, and I think there's more of this addiction being created by the technology that we're living in today, to be perfectly honest. Oh, no. And know, what's the kind of, antidote kind of for a, that? <laughs> well, and, and, and it goes even deeper than that. I mean, because there's this phenomenon, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, called ghosting. Yes. And it's where people just disappear. And so, you know, there you are, you're putting yourself out there, you're making yourself vulnerable, you want to meet someone, and then suddenly someone, you, you think you've made this, quote, connection, and then somebody disappears and they ghost you. So talk about playing into your abandonment issues. So you better be really secure within yourself and not take anything personal because there are no rules today. You know, what used to be, like, considered really rude and, unacceptable is happening like all the time now because they ca- it can happen because they're not doing it in person. They're doing it online. They're anonymous. So there's no, quote, ramifications except being a really lousy person to do that to someone. <laughs> you know what I mean? Wow. Yeah. That's sad. That makes me sad. Mm-hmm. I, um, I've often felt grateful that I'm not on the dating scene at 50, you know. I, I just feel like... Oh, yeah. Because we were raised in a different environment of communication, and as you say, we're we're now living in this upside down world where everything is different and and uh, all the rules are changing so fast that um, I would think that us tender hearted types would be really vulnerable out there. So it's, I definitely it's very think difficult. It's, yeah, my yeah. heart goes out. But to, then to again, what I what I guess what I'm thinking is. It's difficult, but if you get connected to yourself and these things happen to you, they may not feel really good, let's say, you know, for the moment, but you can easily get back and connect to yourself again and go, I'm okay and I'm enough. And what this person thinks of me is really none of my business or I don't even know this person. Like, you know, in other words, if you've done the work and you're connected to yourself, even though you may be sensitive and it may be hurtful, you can kind of get back into wholeness again. Or hopefully not get out of wholeness, to not really allow the I, – I think it's hard, though, not – you know, if you're out there and you want to meet somebody, um, I guess, like you said, if you're tenderhearted, it's going to hurt for a minute. But I think just the more connected we are to ourselves, it doesn't have to hurt as much. But if you haven't done the work, it's going to really set you up for, you know, a lot of feelings of abandonment, I think. One of the chapters in your book is on the grieving process, and – is this what you're talking about, or is there another way that grief plays into healing this part of ourselves? Well, I think the grief, grieving process is the same whether it's, God forbid, somebody passing away or losing a relationship. It's, you know, you go through those stages of anger and uh, depression, and then that stage called bargaining where you don't understand how this could be happening, or, you know, you think about, um, letting someone back in your life, for instance, and then they disappoint you, and you're like, how did this happen to me? So you kind of get stuck there, and then eventually you move into acceptance and letting go. So so that's that's part of the grieving process. The other part is to really try to have sort of a no-contact rule. Like if you really feel like you're obsessed with somebody, 
um, and the relationship is now over, you really want to stay clear of, you know, the texting and the calling and the the drive-bys. You know, you just really want to start working on yourself and really try to have a no-contact rule. Just like with alcoholism, if you know you're an alcoholic, that one sip is going to set you up for the craving, and then before you know it, you're, you know, drinking a bottle of vodka. So it's really the same thing with love and relationship addiction is that if something ends, you need to kind of have no contact, um, you know, with that person or maybe dating itself for a while while you go through the healing and grieving process. I'm smiling that you made that analogy um, because listeners to this show will know that I have on more than one occasion said that to me, like having alcohol in front of me is like standing naked in a closet with an old boyfriend. Like don't tell oh. yourself. Oh, no God, matter I how much that. you say, I'm not going to, nothing's going to happen. Um, why would you be in that situation? Like, that's just a bad Oh, my idea. God, that's so true, Jane. That's so true. And, you know, the truth is, and, and, and I've done it, you know, um, I, I, yeah, I'm not going to go into it to not today, but we often think that, you know, everything's going to be different. And what, and what is that? Insanity. Expecting the same right. thing and, you know, getting different results. It's just it's not going to happen. It's usually going to be the same. And grief, I've often heard, uh, and I experienced this myself when I quit drinking, I grieved wine. I, I grieved wine like it was my best friend, and I had to grieve the loss of my best friend and the lie, the fact that, you know, alcohol lied to me or I lied to myself. And and that sadness was enormous and physical. And as you were talking about the stages of grief, I guess bargaining is often where people relapse, right? They're moving through the grief and they start bargaining. Maybe I can moderate. Maybe I can, like you say, maybe maybe I can text him. Like I can just see the correlations between these two. Yeah, things, yeah. You know? That reminds me of, of someone I was speaking to today. I was doing an interview for Recovery Today magazine, and he was an opiate addict. And he was talking about it took him 15 months to really get the opiates out of his system. And he was talking about just climbing out of his skin and, and you're absolutely right. There was there there's that point where he kind of went, I don't know if I can do this. And if I don't start to feel better, I want I'm going to I I want to die because this is so unbearable. So yeah, I totally get what you're saying. The bargaining is probably that that or the you know the bargaining can also be that moment of clarity too where you go, "Wow, I really I uh, I want this." Even though it's really uncomfortable and I'm really sad that this person is gone or my painkillers are gone or my alcohol is gone, but I want this. I want to get to the other side of this because, you know, what we all do is we all kind of like have a default system, whatever that default system is, going back to that old boyfriend or that old that ex-husband or, or going back to drinking or, or whatever your addiction is, going back to shopping or, or excessive shopping. And it's about getting to the edge of the discomfort so we don't have to go back to that default system. It's like just being on the edge of it and going, okay, I can do this. I know it doesn't feel good, but I can be here because I know that on the other side of this is where my freedom exists. Ah, so that's a bargain too. The just just for today is a is a bargain with yourself when you're mm-hmm. properly motivated and oh, I like that. I like well, I, that. Well, I think it just reminds me of your question about, you know, I can't remember exactly what you said, but it just reminded me that will people do this? Yeah, if they're willing to live in the pain for a minute. Mm -hmm. If they're Mm -hmm. able to just tolerate a little pain. 
maybe a lot of pain. Right. But to know that, you know, everything passes, everything changes. You know, life, you know, there are no guarantees in life that everything is temporary. You know, uh, for a girl that cries during movies and during commercials and things, I had a real fear of breaking down and crying in front of people. And mm. I, I was in a therapy session one time, and I said to the therapist, like, I can't, I can't go, I don't want to talk about this, I, I don't want to start crying. And she said, you know, you physically can't cry for more than X amount of minutes, and we have more than that amount of time left in our session. So this would be a great time oh, for you to cry. <laughs> oh, that's and then so be- funny. <laughs> And that was just the greatest gift. It was so. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. That, girl. that she gave. You know what she did? She gave you another perspective. Right. I just you I don't know? know what I thought was going to happen. You know, if I if I yeah. cried, but boy, I sure. I just had this belief that it would never end, and and I think that's why we run from pain, right? We think it's never going to end. It's going to consume me, and no, it's not. It's going to. And actually, the crying, as you know, is super healthy. I mean, you're basically discharging energy when you're crying. Like all right. kinds of things happen when you discharge all that old stuff. You know, whether it could mm-hmm. be crying, you feel energy in your body, you could feel sweaty hands, you could have suddenly a pain in your back or your neck or. Uh, you know, you might start moving your feet, but all of that is good because you're getting that old stuff out, you know, mm-hmm. and and, you, and it's the stuckness that keeps you stuck in those those same patterns of and habits that, that, um, that aren't working for you. So I have a question for you in the last few minutes that we have left, and that is, um, you know, you said that you've, you've worked with celebrities and you've worked with them. Um, people that have all different levels of fame, and um, of course you can't tell stories out of school. I wouldn't ask you to do that. Um, but right. my question is, is, is recovery more complicated for people that are famous? Because they're the ones that are in the news, and like in a lot of ways that's shaping the stigma. But do they recover the same way we do, or are there other complicating factors? Yeah, I would say it can be much more difficult for a couple of reasons. Um, anyone that does become an actor, actress, or musician, or, you know, you're in the public eye, so when you're in the public eye, there's this scrutiny of what people think of you or what people, you know, you have this, like, public persona. And so there's a lot more scrutiny. Then you have what I call the yes people. And the yes people are the ones that are really the enablers because by keeping you maybe high or keeping you drugged or keeping you in your disease, um, you know, people aren't going to lose their jobs. Like if you're, if you're looking, you know, if you need a fix and that yes person is going to run out and get you what you need, you don't want to lose your job. So you're going to go out and get that person what they need. You know, do you know what I'm saying? So yes, yes, people is a big issue. And then finally there's this level of narcissism. Like if you become an actor or actress, there is a part of you that probably has a narcissistic trait or you may be totally a narcissist. And so, that definitely, definitely is um, a huge issue around addiction and, and being different than, let's say, the average person. So we we were talking earlier about how codependency is a common trait among people with addiction. Can someone be codependent and narcissistic at the same time? Oh, gosh. Um, that's a great question. <laughs> I think I'm going to answer it this way. I think you can be anything and you can have different traits you know we all can have various traits so what i I would say is yes Mm -hmm. i I would say yes you can have both for sure and then i would say this which is even more important i think narcissists and codependents attract each other like magnets 
Mm-hmm. They, they just they find each other because the narcissist needs the attention that the codependent is willing to give them. You know, the narcissist is an empty hole that just needs lots of accolades and attention, and they give very little in return, and they're only in that relationship for what they can gain, and then the codependent loses themselves and is willing to give anything to stay in that relationship. So I think that's the more important question. Not that that wasn't a good question because it was an excellent question, but I think codependents and narcissists are a huge match for each other. And this is the dance of of your book, really, isn't it, that someone who is a marriage and relationship junkie that is steeped in codependence is attracting that narcissistic partner, and that is typically not going to last. That's going to no, be not mutually if they don't dependent. Have, they're not working. Yeah, not they're not working on themselves. You know, right. if they're yeah. not working on themselves, they're just going to. You know, it's you know, codependency is a an, is a muscle you have to exercise, just like addiction. Hmm. It's the same muscle. Like you can easily go back into that codependency. You know, it's it's something you have to be vigilant, just like you have to be vigilant about your own recovery with substance abuse. You've got to be vigilant with codependency because it, it's out to get you. It's, the two it, it's people definitely that, out that, to get you. Do those relationships that form out of that sort of needy? you know, maladaptive, habitual, symptomatic kind of behavior, can they be saved if both people want to work on them? Is there is there often enough there to, can they bloom into well, a, a true healthy relationship? Um, it would be a lot of work. They both have to have their own programs, their own therapy, work out some of their childhood issues perhaps. Um, but the thing is, it isn't for us to decide whether it needs to be saved or not. If they, if it's working in their own dysfunctional way, then I guess it's working for them. You know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, if you know, it, there it is. There's that dance, and you know, we don't, we don't want that dance, but they seem to be okay with it, and um, I guess it's for them to decide. That's why you're a therapist, and I'm not. <laughs> Uh, I hope I didn't sound too therapeutic on this interview. I really, I, I don't no. like to do that. So <laughs> you're so open and warm, and I find that that is oh. that is the when I talk to people who are really good at this, this is the thing that they're able to do that is I haven't learned yet is allowing people to be and and then allowing them to to find their way through what they're in and and. Um, and lo- you know, loving them where they're at, and meeting them where they're at, and right, um, right, and and just like my my sponsor and Alan, you know, always said is, um, you know, they have their own path, and they have their own higher power, or they have their own universal energy that is watching out over them, you know. So we just have to, or even what I learned when I became a social worker, like meet them where they are. You can't, and you can't work harder than they're willing to work. That's a big one. So tell me, Sherry, what is next for you? You're always up to something. Um, do you have well, a project I, on I'm, I'm so grateful that you gave me this platform to talk about my book, The Marriage and Relationship Junkie, and I, and I hope people will check it out on Amazon. And I have something called Wake Up Recovery. Uh, it's just wakeuprecovery.com, and it's a community of people interested in the law of attraction and recovery. And so oh. that's like a huge thing that I'm I'm working on right now and um we have about 30 members and it's just people that want to dive deeper into the law of attraction 
Um, and we just have such a varied amount, of, you know, varied uh, group of people. We have people that um, are recovery coaches. We have people that are recovery counselors. We have people that aren't working recovery at all but are in recovery. We even have some families that don't necessarily have the addiction but have maybe a family member that has an addiction, um, got some love addicts in there. So it's kind of a just a group of people that want to, you know, are in recovery of whatever they're in recovery for, and I think we're all in recovery for something, and then just kind of diving deeper into the law of attraction. So they can find that at wakeuprecovery.com. And, and then we just continue to get great guests on our magazine, uh, recoverytodaymagazine.com, recoverytodaymagazine. We had Russell Brand last month. That was like an amazing interview. He's so great. Did you get you got to interview him? I got to interview him and he's just brilliant. I mean, just oh. brilliant. Oh my god. Brilliant. Just a just he's just he's amazing. He's um, amazing like you, Jean. <laughs> amazing <laughs> like you. Today. So yeah, that's and what I'm working on. Just getting my book out there, getting this wake up recovery community out there and um and then, you know, to be honest, you know, maybe working just a tad bit less. You know, having well, some, I, some some more self care. Good for you. Good for you. That's important yeah. too. And you, you've made an amazing contribution to the world of recovery. And I'm really grateful to have the opportunity to talk to you and to share a little bit more about you with our guests or with our listeners. Aww. And um, I Thank I know you, that our paths will cross again. And I also want to yeah. let our listeners know that they can visit your website, which is sherrygaba.com, S-H-E-R-R-Y-G-A-B-A.com. You've got some terrific resources on there. There's quizzes and articles and uh, links to your books and your eBooks, and there's so much on there. So that's a really great place for people to dig into, and I'll be checking out wakeuprecovery.com. Uh, after I finish Thank this interview, because I'm excited about all of that. So Thank you. I and you keep like, doing the good work that you're doing, because you, oh, know, you just are amazing, too. I really love this. I mean, this not only helps me in in my life, all the people that I get to talk to and connect with, but, you know, we just we just all are lights. We just shine our lights, and we're, this is why okay. I think that re- recovery is changing, because we're not hiding that anymore. We're we're shining it, mm-hmm. and I'm really really happy to be part of it. And and I'm glad to yeah. meet people like you along the way. It's so exciting. Oh, thank you so much again. So before you go, just I wonder if you have any last words of encouragement or insight for our listeners who might be struggling a little bit today or thinking that they're ready to make some changes and not sure what to do next. You know, just the fact that they're on this call they've already, you know, taken the first step of awareness and to congratulate themselves for being right here right now and being having the courage to take a look at something maybe they've been afraid to walk through, but they've taken the time today to listen to this call um, and, you know, to be aware that they're aware now um, and they're ready to take that step when they're ready. And this was a good step to start that journey for them. Sherry, thank you so much, and uh, I look forward to our next conversation. I know that it won't be forever until that happens again, but congratulations on your book, and thank you for all that you do. Thank you again. All right, listeners, this is the Bubble Hour. You can find us at blogtalkradio.com. 
dot com slash bubble hour and of course I'm on Facebook and you can read my blog at unpickledblog.com which tells my story and there's lots of resources and links there as well. You've been listening to me talk to Sherry Gaba, SherryGaba.com and also WakeUpRecovery.com. So that's it for this week of the Bubble Hour. Thanks for listening everyone and until next time, take good care. Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses I just want to be free From power Weakness had on me In a dark corner Is where shame lies behind We think you're strong Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW report prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18+. Plus.